This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. I'm excited to be here with you, and I'm especially excited to kick off our brand new series called Rhythms. And what we're doing, as Pastor Justin said, is for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at one of the seven distinct rhythms that can lay a foundation in your spiritual life. As you've heard us talk, if you've been any part of this church for a while, uh, you've been hearing us talk about, and we're really excited as a staff for this day because uh, we're kicking off our small groups in this Rooted series, and we're so excited to be doing that. My hope uh, is on Sunday mornings that I can kind of come alongside of our small groups and give you each week one of these rhythms, kind of lay the foundation in the church. So if you're new to our church or if you're not in a group, you're still going to be getting these seven foundations. It's also part of what we've called uh, our 10-year vision. Um, as our elder team, we've laid out for the church this goal that we have to see our church grow in the area of discipleship. We want everyone to become the best version, fully mature in following Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of our goal, and that's where we're going. And this first rhythm that I want to talk about today has to do with this book, the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, and not just having a Bible, and not just maybe owning one and having one on a shelf, shelf but actually going to it, turning to it, and reading from it uh, every single day. It's what you would call a, a quiet time, or maybe you would call it your daily devotional time. I want us to really this morning think about and be challenged by the time we spend in God's Word and the habit that it forms inside of us. In fact, um, if you look at sort of Christian engagement in the Bible, it has been unfortunately steadily declining since about the 1960s. Since they started tracking it, the 1960s were kind of the, the peak of Bible engagement, and it's sort of just been on this, well, kind of depressing decline. In fact, some of the reports I've read have been so depressing. In fact, in one article, I read that people outside of the Christian faith, that atheists actually have a better foundation of what the Bible believes than most Christians to this day. And when I read that this week, I thought, <laughs> not in this church, not here, not in this place. And, and yet, I know it takes uh, every one of us kind of this kind of getting over this hurdle to read and engage in the Word. In fact, it could be kind of difficult. I think in some cases, um, a lack of engagement with the Bible is, is maybe because, well, I don't know, I grew up in the church. And you have what I would call kind of a, a nearness bias. Do you know what that means? Like, like a Bible is so near to you. You have one like on a table or you have one on your phone, in your pocket. It's so near to you all the time that maybe you think you know it better than you do. And what happens is we start to kind of actually read things into the Bible. We don't actually read it, but we, we think we know it better, and we, we start to think that it says things that maybe the Bible never intended to say. In fact, uh, reading and preparing this week, I was reading through these quizzes that they give to, to people in the faith, and they're kind of humorous. In fact, I thought we would take a little quiz this morning. Not a Bible trivia quiz, but just kind of some, some questions about the Bible. One of the questions that often gets asked is when it comes to the Bible, a question like this you can kind of answer, play along at home. question would be, what was the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were told not to eat? You can go just turn to the person next to you, just kind of venture a guess. What was the fruit they were not supposed to eat? All right? And the most popular answer would be? Apple. And if you answered apple, that's wrong. See, the Bible never says that they ate of an apple. It just says they ate of the fruit. We don't know what that fruit was. 
Could have been a watermelon for all we know, right? Like magic watermelons ain't, no, never mind, never mind. Another question that often gets asked is how many wise men came to visit Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus? Go ahead, turn to your person next to you and just tell them how many wise men came and visited. And the most common answer would be? And that would also be wrong. The Bible never says that there were three wise men. The Bible says there were three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Okay, let's get away from these questions. Let's ask a a true, false question. True or false, you can just kind of answer this in your mind. You can turn to the person next to you. True or false, money is the root of all evil. It's actually false. It's false. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Money is actually neutral. It's kind of where you put your affection. If you love money, then it will lead to, it can lead to lots of evils. Um, last question, and I won't make you answer this one. This was actually a favorite of my mom's. My mom would say this, and she would always put it in the context, well, you know, the Bible says, I think she was just making this up because the Bible doesn't say this, but she would tell us as kids, you know, put clean underwear on every day, right? Do you have a mom like that? And my mom would say, put clean underwear on every day because the Bible says that cleanliness is next to godliness. I went through all teenage years trusting my mom, and turns out Bible doesn't actually say that. Now, it's still really good advice, so you hear me on that. Uh, last one, and this one actually has to do with the story we're going to look at today. Um, because the story we're going to look at today is one that I, I think I've heard so many people say it over the years. And it's kind of, it's really this Christian cliche, but they'll say, well, the Bible says, you know, that God helps those who help themselves. And the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the truth is God helps. Hard stop after that. God, God helps. And he helps all people. And it's true. He does help you as you continue to pursue him yourself. But God helps. And actually, kind of the, the idea of the Christian faith is, is coming to the point, coming to kind of the end of yourself where you realize that you're beyond hope without his help. And that's where this idea of having a, a daily devotional or a quiet time and, and pouring yourself into God's word, where that's where that really comes in. Where you start to think of, of coming to God's word not as a, well, I have to do this. Instead, it's a, I get to do this. It's not a, well, I need to get God off my back. You know, I better spend a few minutes in his word. And instead, it's thinking, I, I get to do this. I get to engage with God, what if we actually begin to maybe reframe this idea of a, a daily quiet time, a daily devotional, instead of, oh, you know, I need to put in my few minutes? What if we, we changed and, and reframed it? What if we actually began to see it differently? What if we recognized the Word of God actually, I want you to think this morning in like battle imagery. What if the Word of God actually, and the time we spent in it, actually made us battle ready? Because I'm here to tell you this morning that the, the battle is coming. And I don't know what your battle is. I don't know what you're going to face. But the battle is coming. And the choice becomes yours whether you choose to face those battles with God or without God. And that's where the story I want to look at today comes in view. So if you have your Bible this morning, uh, I'd love for you to turn to Exodus chapter 17. In fact, uh, the words will all be on the screen. But we're talking about the Bible this morning. I'd love to have you open either one of the Bibles in the seat racks in front of you or uh, your favorite Bible app on your phone. And the reason I chose this story is I feel like for the past few months, we've kind of been looking at this character. We've been looking at the life of Moses. Um, in fact, I often go back to Moses because I find him to be just 
an incredible inspiration in the area of leadership. If you're a leader, a leader of people, or a leader in your organization, uh, Moses is an incredible character and case study in leadership. And I've read some great books. You can go on Amazon this afternoon. You can type in leadership books, and, and you can read some great ones. I, I loved Shackleton's Way and, and the Leadership Challenge, and, and maybe Good to Great is my favorite. But, but the top of the list and on your shelf should be reading the life of Moses. He had an incredible leadership task in front of him. He was called by God to lead his people and lead them out of captivity. They're slaves in Egypt. And, and well, let's just say that God's people are not easy to lead. And these Israelites, they're, they're told by God that you're going to be blessed so that you can be a blessing to all the other nations. And it becomes kind of this strange sort of journey of them having to kind of leave Egypt and find their way to the promised land. And it's it's not easy. In fact, every day they got to rely on God. They're given this manna from heaven. It's this daily food. And, and not only that, but as they rely on God, they, they complain a lot. They argue a lot. And we've been looking at the stories kind of all around this one. But I wanted to look at this story because this demonstrates that they actually, as they're wandering 40 years, dead lost in the desert, they have many enemies, many battles that they have to face. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 17. If you're having a hard time finding it, it's just the second book of the Bible. You can go to the table of contents, and then Genesis, and then the next book is Exodus. Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8, we read these words. It says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Now let me just pause there for a moment and say a few words about, first of all, these Amalekites. Um, the Bible is actually kind of silent on this group of people. It doesn't tell us a whole lot. We're kind of maybe led to believe that these Amalekites are wanderers, they're nomadic and out of the blue, they sort of ambush God's people, the Israelites. And it's kind of interesting that they would do that because that's really the definition of an ambush, right? I mean, out of nowhere, out of the blue, they come and they levy this attack. And it asks the question from the very beginning, are you ready for whatever battle you might face? I was reading this story this week, and I kept coming back to this childhood moment of mine. It was a bit traumatic. In fact, I was in sixth grade, and I loved basketball. Uh, at that point in my life. And I was actually pretty good size for the kids my age in sixth grade. Kind of peaked at my maximum height capacity <laughs> in sixth grade. And I was a giant on the court. And I remember one night, I, we would always go on Friday nights to the local elementary school, Riverside Elementary. It's not even there anymore. And we would play basketball until they turned the lights off. And it would get a little tense in the room. And I remember one of those nights, it was a little chippy. And I came out and I was holding underneath my arm my, my favorite basketball. It was black with red trim and had a little Air Jordan symbol on it. And I was walking out the door, and I walked out the door of the gym, and out of nowhere came this punch right in my nose. You know, Mike Tyson says everybody has a plan until they get punched in the nose. I, I didn't have a plan. My, my plan was I was staggered. Blood started to flow, and I dropped the basketball. And the kid picked it up and ran off. In fact, uh, my friend was with me at the time, and he took me back to his house, and I didn't want to go home and face my mom, but I, I went back to his house, and he put this big thing of ice on my nose, and he said, you need to get a plan. You need to at least get your hands up if you're going to fight. I'm like, I didn't even see that one coming. And I think about that because how often does that happen to us? I mean, how often do we see the fight in front of us? 
and yet it's there, right? I mean, I don't know what kind of battle you're going to face this week, but it probably has big consequences. I mean, maybe the battle in front of you is, is a battle in your workplace, and you better not throw a punch, right? I mean, maybe it's an ongoing kind of disagreement with your boss, and you've got to figure out, you have to have a plan of what you're going to do. Maybe that battle is, is in your home. Maybe, maybe it's in your marriage, and there's this kind of this remnant of this petty argument over some frivolous little issue, right? I mean, aren't all marriage issues that way? I mean, it's something petty. It's something frivolous. And if you don't figure it out, you may lose way more than just an argument. Maybe the battle is, is just a, it's a personal commitment, right? And, and every time you come up against this commitment, you, you stop short. You fail. And you don't follow through on the commitment. And it hurts not only yourself, but the people around you. Maybe your battle is is one of the pocketbook. It's the budget. And, you know, Christmas was a month ago, and, and you're still spending and spending. And, and your battle is to get control of your spending. Maybe your battle is, as Joyce Myers says, it's this battlefield of the mind. And your battle is every day to figure out how to have positive thoughts and to push back darkness and depression and anxiety. Maybe you've got a battle for just being pure in what you look at and what you click on. And let me just tell you this morning, the battle is real, and I want to ask you, what's your strategy? What's your plan of attack? And Moses here is so interesting because his plan doesn't look like much of a plan, but he's, he's quite strategic. Moses actually had spent time in Pharaoh's household. He was actually trained in sort of how to lead a military, and, and he kind of assumes this position of leader, and he calls in his his battle general, right? He calls in Joshua. <laughs> and he says, okay, Joshua, here's our strategy session. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to take our men, and you're going to go down into the valley, into the trenches, and you're going to fight it out. And I'm going to go up on the hill, and I'm going to take with me my staff. I'm going to be really spiritual up there. And we're never really told what Joshua thinks about this strategy, but I imagine he's probably thinking, how come you don't grab a sword and come with me into the battle? And we see that there's a different plan. In fact, picking back up the story in verse 11, it says, As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. And then this line, so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. It's a remarkable story, isn't it? I mean, it's got this, this strange, mysterious sort of like power from a distance. I mean, power from the distance of Moses standing up on this hill with his arms stretched out. And as long as his arms are outstretched, it seems like they're winning the battle. And then Moses, like any of us, grows tired, right? I mean, it says this battle lasted till sunset. I don't know. Can, can you hold your hands up for 6, 8, 10, 12 hours? He gets tired. And as he gets tired, he's got his two brothers, Aaron and her, and they, they come up beside him, and they prop him up, and they hold his hands up. There's this beautiful picture. And when the arms go back up, it seems like the power flows again. But we kind of get this sense that it's, it's another kind of power, that it's another force, that it's actually even from another kingdom. And it's that last line that's so interesting. When you just walk that back, that, 
that it says, so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. I underlined that in my Bible, and I wrote a little question mark, like, really? I mean, that's what Joshua thinks, right? I mean, he's down in the trenches, but yet there's this whole other series of events that are going on. And behind Joshua is, is Moses lifting his hands up, and behind Moses is God actually doing the battle. And we're talking this morning about daily quiet time, having a devotional, and how we kind of prepare for the battle ahead. And what I think is God is giving us instead this picture of something that's going on. We may think that we're in the valley, in the battle. We may think, oh, i got to wake up. And, man, now, Pastor, i gotta get, I got to get up earlier if I'm going to spend time in the Word. And we're, we're down in the valley thinking all we've got is this sword. And, and yet there's these layers going on behind the scenes. There's, there's other people and there's God at work. And this whole idea is that if, if the battle you start to lose. If your arms start to go down, then the battle seems to be in jeopardy. And yet we want to win the battle. And the only way, the only way that I can think of that if you want to win the battle, you must be transformed by this higher power. That this higher power actually has to flow into the battlefields of your life. And the only way that I know how to do that, and the way in which the scripture lays it out for us, is to spend time with God. To spend time in his word, immersing ourselves so that his word becomes as natural as, okay, there's a battle, there's a fight, well, then I guess i, I got to follow these same steps and I have to raise my hands up. I have to, it has to be as natural as just lifting my hands up to God. It's interesting, we're looking at this story of Moses, but I could have turned to any number of places, especially the Old Testament. There's so much battle imagery and there's so many ways in which people are, are fighting these little battles and yet God is the one who's actually winning the war, you get to the New Testament and you see this, this flesh of Jesus come into the world. The word becomes flesh and lives and walks among us to give us the example of how to immerse ourselves in a relationship with God. You get to the kind of the, the back of the Bible and you get to the, the writers of the New Testament and you see they, they kind of pick up on this language of, of what matters is spending time with God. That's how you're transformed. In fact, I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it. In fact, he, he puts immersing ourselves in the scriptures and having this quiet time, he puts it in the analogy of a marriage. In fact, um, these are beautiful words in Ephesians chapter 5. I love these words of what he has to say. And he puts it in the context of, of marriage. And he starts right, right off the bat. He calls us out as men. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, I'm going to pause here. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, husbands, you should have a love for your wives that looks exactly the same way as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how do I do that? Well, he tells us how. Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Kind of this idea over the centuries has been just this idea of being washed through the word. That there's this standard of, of actually coming to God and spending time with him that we, we actually become so immersed, so, so engrossed in the word that it becomes just a way in which we're washed, washed clean. That becomes the standard of the way in which we walk with God. There's kind of this idea that there's, there's standards. In fact, um, I was thinking this week about how to relate this. And, and let me just ask you, um, by show of hands, any, any clean freaks out there? Like you just love things shiny, clean? Any germaphobes out there like you hate germs? This next part of the message you may not like very much. Um, 
Because there's sort of these standards of cleanliness, right? Like someone may clean something, but they don't clean it nearly to the level that you would like. Or have you thought about your food? Have you thought about how clean it is, the stuff you ingest? In fact, I was reading about some of the standards that we have around food and and what's allowable for consumption. And, well, they might fall below your level of standards. In fact, uh, just a few of them. This is going to ruin your day. This is going to absolutely ruin some of your day. Um, Take apple butter, for instance. I love apple butter. It's got kind of that sweet, savory sort of taste to it. It's got all the fall vibes. But did you know, according to the Food and Drug Administration, it's actually allowable for consumption as long as it has less than 12% mold count and no more than four rodent hairs, right? I mean, because we all know you get five rodent hairs and it's just like sticking to your teeth and four is fine. Five is just... Too much, right? Might be a little below my standards, all right? Uh, Coffee lovers, coffee drinkers, coffee lovers. Oh, did you know that according to the Food and Drug Administration, it's actually allowable for consumption as long as your coffee has less than 10% insect infestation. That works out to be no more than one live insect or 13 insect heads. (laughs) Apparently the rest of the insect is fine, No more than 13. Who's counting these things, right? Like, this is a government job, is it not? I mean, come on. Like, this is great. Uh, Last one, um, mushrooms. Now, that one's just a dead giveaway, right? I mean, they're fungi, right? And so according to the FDA, they're allowable for sale as long as they have less than five maggots per hundred grams. Thinking pizza for lunch? You were thinking? You were. You were at one point. I won't even tell you the standards around hot dogs, okay? I just won't even go there. Those are the standards, and yet... God has a standard, and God's standard is to be washed, white as snow, cleaned and cleansed through his word. That's the goal. That's his goal. And this image, I just can't get out of my mind all this week just thinking about the way in which this works. You've got Moses, and he's reaching out, and he's reaching up to God. What if we thought of our quiet time in that way? And what if we just took that one image from this story, and we said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this image into my devotional time, r- reaching out and reaching up to God. And we didn't think of it as, okay, yeah, whatever, pastor, you know, i got to spend 15 minutes in the Word, i got to get God off my back, you know, I, I need to get clean, I need to get washed, I need a power washer, I'm so dirty, right? And, instead of all that, what if we just thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out to God, and, and God does help those who help themselves. He He does come alongside of us in the battle. And when I get tired, I've got a community of people that I've put strategically around my life to to lift my arms up, to keep me going. What if we thought of that? What if we thought of we're reaching out and we're reaching up and we're connecting to a higher force every time we spend with him? It's these two outstretched arms. I want you to take this image of Moses just maybe one step further in your mind. and I'm hoping that this can carry you into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? What if you actually, you could actually picture Moses there right now, and he, he reaches one arm, and he reaches the next. And each arm, what if you could actually believe that those were promises of God? I want to give you the promises of God that I've been kind of holding on to this week, thinking about this story. And the first is, what if, what if that arm goes up from Moses, and that's actually the symbol, the promise that, that God is able? Think about that. When you spend time with God, you're actually making the statement, God, I know you're able. Have you thought about the abilities of God lately? 
Have you spent any time just kind of wondering about the capacity of God? Let me tell you a little bit about the abilities and capacity of God. I mean, when Moses reaches out, he reaches out to a God that creates. God says, let there be light, and all of creation takes shape. I mean, even Moses, as he's reaching out, he's got to be thinking, I've seen the abilities of God, and they're, they're magnificent. He's seen God deliver them from Pharaoh in Egypt. He's seen them cross through on dry ground. I mean, literally, the Red Sea parted, walls of water on either side. Moses is reaching out to this incredible God. He's seen God deliver and bring them manna every single day, bread from heaven. He, he would know and hear later of how God would deliver Daniel from the lion's den and three men from a fiery furnace. In the life of Jesus, we see these capabilities just continuing, these crowds of thousands of people fed with just five loaves and a couple of fish. Through Jesus, we see the lame walk and the blind see. Through God, we see the dead are raised. I want to tell you this morning that if you even dare say the word God, you cannot say God and just mean some sort of poetic or, or kind of like cute logical sense. That when you say the word God, you are saying that God is able. God is exceedingly able to meet all your needs. And then imagine that arm going up on the other side. And imagine that being the promise that God is also willing. Because think about that. If God was just able and yet God was somehow unwilling, what a cruel trick that would be. I mean, I couldn't lift my hands up to a God that was only able but unwilling to come alongside of me in life and in battles. How horrible would that be? I mean, I wouldn't want to lift my hands up to that God, but that God fortunately doesn't exist. How willing is God? The scriptures say that God is willing to create you in total freedom, freedom to love him in return. That's just this human agency to turn in your sin, to turn and to love him back. He created you intimately. He knows you. He knows your every thought. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows your fears. He knows, he knows your tears. It says that in the Bible that God actually collects your tears in a bottle. God is this willing shepherd, right, to leave the 99 and to go after the lost one. He is the father with his arms stretched out to welcome home the prodigal son or daughter. God, in the ultimate decision, sent his son into the world to willingly stretch out his arms on a cross to die for each one of us. God is able and God is willing. I want to just add one final word, and in just a moment, the worship team is going to come out and join me on stage here. But uh, if maybe you're getting back into this rhythm of a quiet time, I want to just give you some real simple, very, very simple ways in which you can do this. Um, kind of three things. The first thing I would say, number one, is, is just to say a simple prayer. Before you even open the Bible and get all worked up about maybe how hard it has been to read in the past, but before you even do that, just make a, a really simple prayer. Just simply pray, God, meet me. Just those words, God, meet me. And just trust that he will. God will meet you in his word. And then the second thing that I would ask you to do is to read the Bible and to kind of strip away these ideas that, well, i got to get through the Bible. i got to read a chapter a day, or i got to read through, you know, three chapters a day. i got to read through the whole Bible in a year, right? I mean, get rid of all that thinking. And instead of reading to kind of get through the Bible, instead read to try to get the Bible through you. I talked last week about not being so hung up on information, instead looking for insight. And so 
Read until you get something insightful from the word. I'll tell you this week when I read through this word, it was that last line, Joshua overcame. I stopped right there. Like it was enough reading. You can be an overcomer with God. And you just take that one insight into your week. And that's the third thought. Not only pray, God meet me, and then read for insight, but then the third thing, just continue to take that thought throughout the day with you. You just take that one thought, that one idea into everything you do. Maybe this morning it's the idea that that Joshua overcame. Maybe it's this morning, it's this image of God being able and God being willing. That's my hope. If you bow your heads and if you pray with me, please. God, I just pause in this moment and I just thank you that you don't leave us and you don't forsake us. In fact, God, I know that in the world will oftentimes, those battles will beat us up. And your word and our time with you is designed entirely to build us back up. And so I just pray as an open heart and as a pastor that loves your word and loves your people this morning, God, that we would simply turn towards you, that we would see that image and we would see behind it a God who is battling for us, fully able and fully willing. So God, I just pray that you would encourage and strengthen hearts this morning, strengthen us for the week and the battles ahead, Lord, because the battle is yours. To yours be the glory and all the honor. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.